The teaching text this morning is John 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If, anyone for, if any of you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The word of the Lord. Good morning. so good for us to hear uh, stories from the life of our church and these theological concepts that we wrestle with pulled down into the narrative details of someone's life uh, so crucial for us. Uh, we're, not just, uh, we're not just wrestling with ideas here. Uh, we're wrestling with a God who is personal and who's inviting us to trust him in uh, all manner of circumstances, large and small, dramatic and mundane. Uh, if, if we can, I want to ask you to just use your imagination for a few moments um, to put yourself in the scene that we just read, the, the text scene. Um, we have a, a, lo- a, a door where the disciples of Jesus are gathered and they're behind a locked door. I don't know exactly the dimensions of the room, uh, but we know we, they've been together in rooms before where they've shared the Last Supper and had their feet washed. And Perhaps this is similar. Uh, But when they woke up this morning, the morning of this particular scene, everything was different. Jesus was dead. And they were simply the somewhat pathetic remnant uh, of a failed messianic movement inside of Israel. And there had been others, there had been revolutionaries, some more successful than others, some more violent than others. But in a sense, once your leader is executed, that's it. And... So their leader had been executed, and granted it was on trumped-up charges of insurrection, and Rome, the most dominant force of the day, had established their might and power again. Oddly, this time at the request of Israel's religious leaders, who despised Rome and despised the occupation, but they had this forced and somewhat awkward uh, alliance around getting rid of Jesus. And so here we are. And the old saying, if you, if you strike the shepherd, the, the sheep will scatter. Surely that applies in this situation. Um, there's probably no real reason for the authorities to come looking for Jesus' disciples if Jesus is gone. They're, they're not going to show, show their faces again. The, the message has been sent loud and clear. Your, your leader was publicly and brutally executed. Uh, me- message, message received. But... This morning changes things a little bit for them. They're gathered behind this locked door. They're, they're hiding in fear because the body of Jesus is missing. And they've gotten word of this earlier in, in the day, earlier in the morning. And now evening has come. And they're behind these locked doors for fear of the Jewish authorities because 
If the body's missing, all of a sudden they're not just this pathetic remnant of a failed messianic leader. Now they're targets again. Because if the body's missing, that means there's shenanigans. That means perhaps his followers are plotting something where they'll... They'll say that he rose again. Wasn't this Jesus person always claiming uh, that, he, that he could tear, see the temple torn down and rebuild it in three days? His disciples might be planning to steal the body. And so now all of a sudden there is reason for them to be afraid. Mary had told them that she'd been to the tomb and that she'd looked for Jesus and he wasn't there. We had the foot race between Peter and John to the tomb. They get there, they see an empty tomb, but the men don't actually meet Jesus. The next encounter is with Mary and Jesus. And so they haven't seen the risen Lord yet. But they're prime suspects. There would have been a target on them. And so they're rallying together to figure out a plan. Right? You can, you'd imagine this scene. There are scenes like this in movies all the time where like everything's changed now. We've got to figure out what we're going to do and how are we going to get out of town. And, and I was just trying to imagine the discussions going on inside this room. What are the tensions that are at play? We know that John had walked into the tomb and it said that he believed. So maybe he's like the one person on the jury who believes different from the rest and he's trying to convince everyone to go, to go his way. That maybe, maybe those things that Jesus said to them back before the arrest and the, and the, and the trial and the execution, maybe those things have weight and, and maybe it's not exactly like we expected, but maybe Jesus is in some way risen and, and then others standing up more practical saying, listen, even if he is alive... They've killed him once, what would stop them from killing him again? Like, maybe we're in even more danger. How how could they defend themselves? What public lives could they go back to in their hometown? Could they just go back to fishing? I think think it's important to remember that... uh, we can imagine that belief must have come really easily to those who heard Jesus' teaching, who walked alongside him, who walked in step with him, who saw his, his, his miracles, who heard him answer like the most profound questions of their day. We can imagine that Jesus uh, must have made it easy for them to believe. And yet, after all these three years that they've been through, and even the promise that Jesus sort of cryptically said to them, listen, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to come back. It's like... We're, we're still like, in some senses, we're like toddlers being dropped off in children's ministry. We just can't fathom the idea that the parents are ever returning. So we're melting down. We're biting people. And we're throwing things. Like, this is it. I'm being abandoned by my parents. That small piece of us that's always throwing fear into the ticker tape of our thought consciousness. But it wasn't easy for these who had walked with Jesus to believe Many who saw his miracles and heard his teaching walked away. And interestingly, the people he shows up and reveals himself to after his death weren't those. He, he didn't try to win back those who had already walked away. He, he tried to recover the hearts of those who had believed and yet whose hearts were crushed by the circumstances. I think another thing to remember is it wasn't easy for these disciples to believe. And another, uh, something that's true of us is that it's incredibly challenging for something to grip our whole beings. We are conflicted people. We are, we are complicated folk. And I, I, I think this is uh, 
true, true for all of us. We, we, we wrestle with the fact that many times we, we, we believe and we want to believe even more, but we struggle to. We struggle to let something grip our whole, our whole lives. Or sometimes uh, we, we do believe, we really do, do believe, but we're struggling to live out the convictions and commitments of what we say matters most to us. We know something in our mind, but we can't seem to get it in our hearts. And this, the scripture is unblushing in its diagnosis of the human condition throughout the narrative of, of, of redemptive history. Like, people are complex. It's really hard for our whole lives to be gripped by something. The Apostle Paul, we're, we're going to look at this this summer, in Romans 7, after he's just maybe expounded the most beautiful descriptions of grace coming into someone's life. In Romans 5, when you were, when you were enemies with God, he died for you. You couldn't bring a single ounce of deserving to the table, and yet his mercy was enough to bring you into his family. And then Romans 6 says, your entire nature's been changed. You've died to that old way of living. You've been raised to a new way. Like Tobias' story, like how could you ever doubt again? Like I was rescued in the, in the prison yard by God, right? Then just a regular weekday comes several years later and we're conflicted beings and we say things like the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. What's wrong with me? Great anxiousness and sadness can overwhelm our hearts in those moments when we become painfully aware of how conflicted we are. The bold declarations of these disciples that they would never abandon Jesus. And yet, the arrest moment came and they scattered. Belief wasn't easy for them. We have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. When we imagine that because we have science and microscopes and the internet, uh, that we have a right to our skepticism because belief certainly would have become easy to those first century Jewish people who saw Jesus walk on water. Well, N.T. Wright uh, helps us with this misconception, if we have it, and you may not, but I think this is important to remember. It cannot be stressed too strongly that first century Jews were not expecting people to rise from the dead as isolated individuals. Resurrection for them was was something that might happen for all on that great future occasion when when God brought history to an end and a whole new world was renewed. It will not do, therefore, to say that Jesus' disciples were so stunned and shocked by his death, so, so unable to come to terms with it, that they pro- pro- projected their scattered hopes onto the screen of fantasy and invented the idea of Jesus' resurrection as a way of coping with the cruelly broken dream. That has an initial apparent psychological plausibility to 20th century people, but it will not work as serious first century history. There were lots of other messianic and similar movements in the Jewish world, roughly contemporary with Jesus. There were many situations in which a messianic leader died a violent death at the hands of authorities. In not one single case do we see the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. In the Jewish worldview, an individual could not be resurrected in the middle of history and history just continue going. It was not something that was possible in their worldview. So Jewish revolutionaries whose leaders had been executed by the authorities only had two options. Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that your original leader had been resurrected was not an option. Unless, of course, he was. So we're using our imaginations. And the doors are locked. 
for fear. Just considering that image for a few minutes. The doors were locked for fear. There was sweat and tension and debate and pacing back and forth and suggestions and questioning. There was a very fresh vision of what can happen if you continue this revolution, if you continue this rebellion, if you try to carry forward what Jesus had started. You could experience the brutality of the cross. And this is the scene into which Jesus walks to encounter his closest friends in this first moment of resurrection. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And to the tension of that room, into that fearful moment, Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you. Rooted all the way back in the story of Israel, he gives this exclamation of shalom, God's peace to you. Right? We, ha- we have to know that just even imagining the tension of that room before he shows up, that he's not just going to walk in and be like, relax. Peace be with you in this instance doesn't mean relax. It means shalom. It means the deepest, most full possible way of experiencing peace. Jesus is saying, on every level of your lives, things are going to be right now. On every level of your lives, things are going to be right now. Now, we know from going forward in the trajectory of the disciples' lives, we're certainly not saying that now it's very easy for your whole being to be gripped by something. We know that they still wrestle throughout their lives, but Jesus is saying to you, in a profound cosmic sense that relates to your practical reality right now, shalom. Eugene Peterson, who translated the whole Bible, so we should listen to him, says this about shalom. Shalom, peace, is one of the richest words in the Bible. You can no more define it by looking up its meaning in the dictionary than you can define a person by his or her social security number. It gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God then that when complete releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom. And perhaps nowhere more clearly than showing up behind these locked doors, revealing his wounds to his closest friends and saying everything is going to be all right all the way down to the very bottom of the universe and the bottom of your hearts. Shalom for their present moment behind locked doors. Shalom for their past. Shalom for their future. Very quickly. Right? The danger that they were in, the, 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 the conspiracy council that they were having, how do we smuggle one another out of town? How do we avoid being arrested? What, what, what are we going to do right now? All of a sudden, the danger they were facing loses its teeth. It's declawed. Right in their midst. Because here's Jesus, this Jesus with power, right? This is the Jesus they've seen say to hurricane level winds, all right, enough. This is the Jesus they've seen provide for a group of people scattered across the countryside, very hungry with fish and loaves. This is the same Jesus who they were there at Lazarus' tomb when he said, come forth. And Lazarus came out and they're like, all right, now take off the grave clothes. 
You'll need to be walking around now normally. The danger they were in loses its teeth because at least if Jesus is with them, they have to know that one is with them with the power to make sure they're safe, to make sure they're okay. But also, their past experiences shalom. Maybe most glaringly, and we're going to look at his story a little later in this series in depth, but Peter, right? So easy. Strong, impetuous promises that he'll never deny Jesus, and then sitting around a campfire after Jesus had been arrested, a small girl, I don't know why that detail is included in there, uh, a small girl asked, asked Peter if he was with Jesus, and he flatly denies it. Now, if Jesus is dead, that's it. No chance to explain his motivations, no chance to say, I'm sorry, no chance to make anything right again. The the opportunity for grace to be extended is over, and yet now, shalom. Jesus walks into the room with the locked door, and the locked door of shame in Peter's heart is opened. There's an opportunity, a new possibility has been opened up. And then their future. Like, in a sense, man, even if they kick down the doors now and kill all of us, it's like, there's still not the end. Death has become a comma instead of the final, final word. Their, their future is experiencing the reality of resurrection. In studying for Easter, I, I came across a theologian who said this one simple sentence. The, resurrections of, or the resurrection of Jesus means that there will be more. And for each of their own individual lives, there was a possibility of resurrection. For the community following Jesus, there's a possibility of resurrection for each of us. So, Jesus isn't walking into this room with locked doors and saying, hey, relax. He's saying, my peace I give to you, not peace as the world gives it, but my shalom peace. And it says, the disciples felt appropriately. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. All of a sudden, you must have imagined that the things Jesus had said to them before came flooding back into their minds. Hey, I promise you, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to return. And every time he would say that, they would scratch their heads and they would go into little, little uh, circles amongst each other and they would debate what he possibly meant. We have an example of this in John 16. I wonder if this, this scene popped back into their minds in, in, the, in the room as Jesus came in and announced shalom. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the, while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when the baby is born, she forgets the anguish of her Because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not been asking for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. No matter what you came into this room thinking about God, I wonder if you would consider for just a moment that one of the things that's stated over and over again in the New Testament is that God's desire is that our joy be complete. What does that say about God or say about his longing for you? 
seems to be one of the things Jesus is reinforcing over and over again in his teaching is, hey, don't settle for something that's less than complete. Something can happen. Something can happen so decisively that all the pain that you've been experiencing suddenly washes away in an ocean of joy. My wife is standing up now to leave the service. Now she sat back down. She's like, don't call me out. She might be leaving because she's like nine and a half months pregnant. You might have a baby any day, right? Yeah. Come on, that's fantastic. Number four, you're doing great. I love you. I know your face is turning red right now. But that's okay. What a metaphor, right? Choosing that, like we're facing, we know, like, not, not, we're not like headed to Jerusalem for execution, but we know we're headed to St. Luke's for birth. And it's going to be painful and it's going to be hard. And, and every time we've had a kid, it's been weeks late. And every time we've had a kid, it's taken like 55 hours for these children to come into the world. They're very reluctant. They're very comfortable. Luke, you're here. You got anything to explain for yourself why it takes you so long to be born? I contrast just the, the moment when Elijah was born, right, first, first kid, I'm there, like 45 cameras hanging off me, video, I'm just like, doo, 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 doo. I literally have no space to feel any emotions because I'm just so excited, and I'm, I'm documenting everything, I'm like journaling and picturing and videoing, <laughs> and I feel like in some ways technology got in the way a little bit, uh-huh. but we went through this 40-hour epic labor process, and it didn't go exactly like we planned, well life. So when Luke was, was going to be born, we were like, this time, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, this time I'm going to do it differently. Well, we get in there, and I'm, I'm not filming anything, I'm not journaling, I'm a moleskin, I'm just present. And all of a sudden, we have complications right at the, right at the, at the moment. Like, we've gone through all the, a little, few less hours, but all, all the agony, and then his heart rate starts to drop every time she's pushing. And uh, the doctors are very concerned. And uh, for some reason, it was a teaching moment in the hospital. So there's like 100 people in there with clipboards that are just like observing. And I'm fr- freaking out. And they, they say they're going to have to get him with the forceps. Sorry, Luke. Uh, they're going to get you with the forceps and pull you out. Okay? <laughs> Terrifying moment. Agonizing, fearful moment. And uh, we're, we're wondering how it's going to go. And this time, we're... With Elijah, I had just been taking all the photographs. The moment comes where he's born, and I just, like, lose it. Just, like, a shower of tears falling on the hospital floor. And I look up at one of the girls with the clipboard, and she's crying, too. I'm like, this is a great class for you. <laughs> but everything changes in that moment where they put the, sl- you know, slimy lizard on the mother. And you're like, it's a boy lizard. <laughs> and they clean him off. You're like, oh my gosh, my son. And even Allison, who'd been through 50 million times more agony than I, right? The pain of that washes away. So much so that you're like, maybe we'll do that again crazy that's the metaphor that Jesus gives us for 
for dealing with this idea of seeing him again after the resurrection. Literally all the brutal pain that you've been experiencing is going to recede like a tide. And you're going to consider doing life again in an entirely different way. And all the things that kept you locked behind doors of shame or locked behind doors of fear or, or locked up in the same patterns of thinking and behavior that you've all, like all of that can change. If resurrection is possible, then there is nothing that can't be done in the name of grace. There's no way that you can't restart. And God's saying, I want your joy to be complete. To know what you're made for. To know that embrace that you're made for. And so the disciples are flooded with a sense of a combination of utter relief and new possibility. And that is a profound combination. But you know what? Jesus' purpose in this moment goes beyond comforting them. Because of his next words, we, we know this. Jesus said, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Shalom. And then, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is not just a type of peace to deal with your personal turmoil or your community's personal turmoil. This is meant to translate from comfort into courage. To translate from a place of shalom to your life on every level. Remember your restored new identity. Remember the possibility that grace opens up all kinds of new opportunities for your life. But it's not just for you to feel okay and to be able to come back to the well of grace and draw. As important as that is, you're coming back for the well of grace to draw so that you can go out and extend the same comfort with which you've been comforted to others. As the Father sent me, and you couldn't get more weighty a statement, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you to walk into doors locked with fear and say shalom, to walk into friendships with people wrestling with anxiety and depression, wrestling with the grief of a lost child, wrestling with all the horror of what it means sometimes to be a human being, and walk into them and embrace them and hold their face and say shalom. This is not just comfort, it's sending. It's not just peace, but courage. I think maybe one of the most important statements of the whole video we saw with Tobias is the last one at the end. After all that, right, that would be enough. That's enough of a story. And then yet at the end it says that Tobias is working on the Upper West Side and and the Upper West Side's church's efforts in Harlem to be someone who comforts other people with the comfort he received in the prison yard in that moment. That he's extending that same shalom he received. As the Father sent me, Tobias says, I am sent. Church, you are sent. We dedicated Sunni this morning, Lem and Downey's child. Some of you have been around when you've heard Lem share his testimony. That he was on the basketball court literally saying, this is it. My life is about to end. I can't go on anymore. I'm having this moment and then it's over. And stranger comes up to Lim while he's playing basketball and says to him, now this is going to sound bizarre, but I feel like God asked me to come over here and speak to you and tell you that you're loved. All of a sudden the basketball drops, the conversation begins that actually saves Lim's life and introduces him to the resurrection hope of Jesus, to that shalom 
And I love when Lem tells his story because you're so moved by that. God intervened and rescued you. God showed you his grace in a moment of dire need. God showed up. And you're like, yes. And then he asked the, the next question, which is, if you were that stranger and you saw the basketball, the guy playing basketball, and you felt prompted, would you go over there? Or would you say, God, that's going to be awkward. God, maybe, you, maybe that's just something I ate. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Like even if you don't believe in Christianity or the claims of Jesus, like that as a community organizing force is pretty powerful. <laughs> that someone's life would be so transformed and changed by new possibility, by grace, by forgiveness, by healing, by newness, and then that person would become an agent of that newness. To go and extend and comfort others with the comfort which with, with which they have been comforted. On Easter tide, we're asking the question: Did our hearts not burn when we encountered Jesus? Did it not awaken something in us at the deepest level? And if the answer is yes, then the, the questions have to keep going. In what way are we living sent? In what way are we going into the corners and nuances and places of our world, our children's rooms or our co-workers' offices or our, our brainstorming retreats or, what, what, or whatever, the, our classroom on Monday morning, and are we extending the message of shalom, of resurrection, of new life, of, of gospel grace in the situations of our life? Very quickly, as, as we prepare to go to the table... I want to just say to us as a church that what Jesus says to the disciples, he is saying to you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you into Brooklyn in 2015 with a message of resurrection, with a message of life, with a message of shalom. So how can you go like Jesus went? As the Father sent me, so I am sending you, how on earth could we go? What are the things that characterize Jesus' sentness? that would need to characterize our sentness if we're going in the same way that he was sent by the Father. A couple of, I think, just pillars to hold on to. We're not going to unpack these to, a whole lot, but one is that he was led by the Spirit. Incredibly important. In, in Mark 1, at Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his public ministry, incredibly important in the narrative of Jesus' life that for 30 years he lived in obscurity. Then when he begins his public ministry, he's filled with the Spirit at his baptism. And what you see for the next three years is life in the Spirit. John the Baptist says, After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In Romans 8, it talks about those who have received Jesus' gospel grace. And it says that they're not slaves anymore to a spirit of fear. They've received a spirit of adoption by which they cry, Abba, Father. Here's the, the narrative account of that in Jesus' life. 
The Spirit descends on him and his primary identity is affirmed. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When the gospel comes crashing into any of our lives, if we're going to be sent like Jesus is sent, we have to know that we're not going out based on our willpower and ability to perform and ability to keep our commitments by the strength of our, of, of our goodness. We are sent by the power of the Holy Spirit and an affirmed identity that everything Jesus has done counts for us. His life, his death, his resurrection... And therefore, we receive his spirit, and without an ounce of earning, we are called beloved son, beloved daughter. If you go out without that foundation, you will burn out very quickly. <laughs> you, you will constantly be attaching your identity to things like, how many people are in the service, and how do people respond to my sermon? And all. I'm just giving you my little lists. Led by the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus was, and this is in the poetry of his announcement in John 1. It says he came full of grace and truth. To go as representatives of Jesus, to be sent as the Father sent him, we go in grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who, who is himself God, is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus... And therefore us, in his sentness, are making known the character of God. And it's, the, the phrase there is full of grace and truth. What on earth does that mean? I'll give you one little account of a story that I think sums up grace and truth. Right? It's very familiar. One of the most famous stories in Jesus' ministry is that a woman is brought to him who's been literally caught in the act of adultery. So you can imagine the shame. We don't know where the man is in this situation. But the religious leaders have drug her into the street... We have no idea what level of clothing she has on, but the humiliation would be paramount. And standing there, they throw to him the truth. The law says that she should be executed for her crime. And Jesus demonstrates what it is to be a messenger of grace and truth and not to compromise on either. He says, all right, fine. You want to execute her according to the truth? Let whichever one of you has, not, has no sin cast the first stone. And then he does a little art project in the sand. We don't know exactly what he writes. Maybe it's their sins. Maybe he's just like doodling, wasting time. He's like, I know you guys are leaving. I have something I want to say to her. He doesn't compromise the truth at all. But he protects her with grace. He shields off the judgment and then he goes to her, and he doesn't say, all right, you're free. He says, go and sin no more. He kneels down next to her, and he says, don't settle anymore. I want your joy to be complete. Don't settle anymore. You're a beloved daughter. When we go out into Brooklyn in 2015, it's pretty important that we be those who carry Jesus' grace and truth. So easy to compromise on one or the other. But he wasn't just a man of words. He was a man of actions. Kingdom actions. Not just ideas or doctrine. But lovingly administering mercy to people. Feeding the hungry. Standing up for justice. Working and praying for freedom. I'll give you Jesus' summary of his ministry. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. For centuries, Isaiah had said, Messiah is coming. And he will demonstrate the reality of the kingdom of God in a person. And Jesus said, today that's happening. When we are sent, we will be those who by the spirit of God do the types of things Jesus did. Proclaiming good news. Proclaiming freedom. Working for prisoners. Working for the recovery of sight. Helping people that are oppressed be be free. Proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And as Jesus walked into that locked room with the disciples and he transformed their fear to peace and then courage, I think we'll also have to have that same transformation true in us. We'll have to have gone from fear to peace, but not just personal comfort, that outward expression of that peace and courageous loving action. And one of my favorite scenes of courageous loving action with Jesus is when he's going to be arrested. Right? We know he's been pleading with God for another way. God said, no, there's no other way. So Jesus fully submits himself to go to the cross. He sweat drops of blood. His, his friends have, have, have been scattered, and they, they come in to arrest him. They come with armed soldiers to arrest Jesus, and he walks courageously up to the people who are going to arrest him. And I love this scene. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. A bunch of times Jesus says, I am, in the book of John. And this time when he says it, people fall down. And these are the people who have come to arrest him. Jesus takes courage from the fact that not the danger is gone, they're going to get up and arrest him, but that his fundamental identity is rooted in who God says he is, and that his power comes from something other than these circumstances, and that he can declare his true identity, walk fully into all the hardship that comes with, with submitting fully to the will of God, and he can do that courageously. Now, you and I, when we face conflict, we're probably not going to spin around and say who we are and people are going to fall down. Very rarely will that happen. But we can know in the depths of of our being that our identity is declared, that we're full of the Spirit, that we're commissioned with grace and truth and kingdom actions. If you trace the trajectory of those who are locked in that room when Jesus shows up, almost all of them give their life. Give their life, physically die for the message of Jesus. Now you certainly wouldn't do that if you knew that he hadn't raised from the dead. They're not, do, they're not doing that part on faith. They're doing it on sight. And they, they went from being locked up in fear to, in the early scenes of the book of Acts, boldly standing up no matter what happens to them and saying, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Savior and Lord. So as you're coming to the table this morning, I want to ask you this. What has you locked up behind a door? Is it shame at something that you've done or said or promised and failed to do? 
a wound that's been inflicted on you, something that you think you are. Maybe the lock feels good because you can't bear to release control in your life. That's the stumbling point. You love the invitation of God's love, but you really can't get over giving up control. Maybe you've gotten so used to living for approval that you know identifying with Jesus is going to cost you in that realm. And so you'd rather stay with the pain you're familiar with. I believe Jesus wants to speak shalom to you and to me this morning. When we come to the communion table, we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which forever says to us, shalom, it is finished. You are forgiven, you are healed. The teeth have been taken out of the danger that faced you. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask that you would consider that as the Father sent Jesus, so he is sending you, Trinity Grace Park Slope. So he is sending me, so he's sending each of us. Come and deal with God and whatever things are, are, are keeping you locked away from that calling as we come to the table. Heavenly Father, I thank you that when the disciples saw your wounds and your resurrected body, that they rejoiced. I pray that that joy would grab hold of our hearts this morning. I pray that it would overwhelm fear. Lord, I thank you that uh, your love covers a multitude of sin, that you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and power and of a sound mind. I pray for any of us, God, who are locked away in fear this morning, that you would call us out by your love. I pray for us as a church that we would know in the depth of our being that we are sent to be messengers of your shalom, messengers of your resurrection. Equip us with what we need by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.